Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor George S. Georgiev of Emory University School of Law. Professor Georgiev is the author of a recent post to the Oxford Business Law Blog entitled The SEC's New Proposal on Climate Disclosure, Critiquing the Critics. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Professor, your recent paper addresses some of the criticisms that the Securities Exchange Commission has received in response to its March 2022 proposal to mandate climate risk disclosure. One criticism that some have raised is that the proposal mandates disclosures that are not universally material and therefore are beyond the scope of the SEC's rulemaking authority. Professor, can you explain to our listeners this concept of universally material, and why do you believe it's a red herring when used by critics of the proposal? Thanks, Jeff. That's a great question. And I'm not sure anyone uh, really understands what universally material means because it's a fairly new concept that has appeared in just a couple of speeches by SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Uh, but before we uh, try to uh, uh, parse through universal materiality or universal material, I think it's actually useful to go back and uh, remind our listeners about what materiality means. And of course, materiality uh, has been uh, discussed by the U.S. Supreme Court in the context of uh, liability, imposing liability for failure to disclose um, when there has been a duty to disclose uh, under the securities laws. And in the 1976 case of TSC Industries, is the Northway. The Supreme Court said that information is material if there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor would consider it important in making an investment or voting decision, or in other words, there must be a substantial likelihood that the disclosure of the admitted fact, again, this is for liability purposes, would have been viewed by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information made available. So this is uh, what the Supreme Court has said about materiality generally. Of course, as you can see, it's fairly intuitive and common sense definition. At the same time, however, it doesn't really tell us how to operationalize materiality. And so the SEC has taken that and developed guidance and disclosure frameworks and checklists and um, other kind of standardized forms that help issuers actually when they are asked to disclose something. And so there is a lot of just checklist type disclosure. So universal materiality, as best as I can tell, is something that would be material in the case of all issuers and all the time, which of course is a very, very high bar for disclosure. And so just to be clear, there isn't anything in the Supreme Court case law, or even in SEC practice up until now that requires for a particular category of information to be universally material, quote unquote, for it to be part of the disclosure regime. So I think the argument is that now at the climate change or climate-related disclosure stage, that something should be universally material for it to be required uh, to be disclosed. And this is a new argument. And that's why I think it's it's a red herring, because it's just impossibly high. I mean, uh, very few things can be universally material, if, if anything, really. And materiality is really, by its nature, both contextual and relative. So how uh, are we even going to determine whether or not something is uh, universally material or not? And again, trying to unpack this concept, we actually do have some insight into Commissioner Peirce's uh, thinking about this, uh, because in her fairly lengthy speech, she actually 
points out in a footnote that even long settled SEC rules on, for example, executive compensation, related party transactions, environmental uh, litigation, and so on, are in her view, uh, not universally material. So uh, they wouldn't meet the, the, the high standard that uh, she has uh, proposed for, uh, for new disclosure. And then even in the context of, uh, for example, human capital management, uh, when the SEC was looking at uh, revising Regulation SK and they added a principles-based disclosure requirement around the HCM, uh, Commissioner Peirce uh, expressed the view in, in a statement in connection with that rulemaking, expressed the view that uh, the SEC should scrap the requirement to disclose the number of employees that uh, registrants have, because again, this is not universal material. So even something as basic as the number of employees uh, doesn't meet the standard of uh, universal materiality and in, in her view shouldn't be required to be disclosed. So I think this is a very idiosyncratic, ultimately a very idiosyncratic view of materiality and definitely not something that is consistent with uh, Supreme Court precedent with SEC practice, or really with the mainstream thinking about materiality. And that's why in my uh, blog post and paper, I call it a red herring. Professor, your paper also mentions the concept of double materiality. So what is double materiality? Where does it come from? And what role does it play in the debate over climate disclosure? So unlike universal materiality, uh, we do know a little bit more about double materiality. And double materiality, sometimes referred to as dynamic materiality, is something that uh, comes from the European Union, and it's a different approach to materiality. So double materiality uh, basically means that in deciding whether or not something should be disclosed, companies should look not only at how sustainability issues or ESG issues may affect the company, but also how the company affects society and the environment. So this is where the double, uh, double and double materiality comes from. So not just looking at how, for example, climate risk and climate-related matters may impact the company's bottom line, but also how the company and the company's activities may impact society and the environment and so on. And just to underscore, this is the approach in the European Union, adopted in or reflected actually most prominently in the EU's non-financial reporting directive. Uh, but this is a EU approach that has nothing to do with the approach that the SEC is following in its uh, May uh, 2022 proposal. So double materiality, yes, it exists, uh, but it is not reflected in the SEC's uh, March 2022 proposal on uh, climate-related disclosure. Professor, your paper also addresses the criticism by some that the SEC's climate risk disclosure proposal may violate the First Amendment's limitation on compelled speech. Can you explain the First Amendment argument? And more broadly, can you talk about your conclusion that an SEC final rule on climate risk disclosure should withstand any legal challenges? Right. So the First Amendment argument uh, is uh, another fairly new argument uh, because the uh, 
Uh, U.S. Supreme Court certainly has not looked at the constitutionality of uh, securities disclosure. And uh, there, there is some Supreme Court case law on c- commercial speech or uh, compelled speech in the commercial context uh, in, in other areas, in other areas, in consumer-related disclosure, for example, uh, but not in the context of securities disclosure targeted investors. And so the, the argument here is, uh, and again, uh, this is, uh, something that is untested and something that is very new, uh, but drawing on some of the existing case law, uh, the argument is that because the this disclosure mandate doesn't, you know, the argument is that it doesn't focus on purely factual and uncontroversial uh, information, and and the information that is required is unjustified and unduly burdensome. So these are obviously uh, judgments that with qualifications, you know, they're not easy to make. And um, I, I think this argument is setting the stage for a legal challenge of the SEC's proposal. My view is that uh, this challenge uh, should not succeed and, and it will not succeed because the SEC basically has been is, is doing what it has always been doing, uh, which is look at the information that a reasonable investor would need in order to make an investment decision or voting decision. And then uh, coming up with a rule or a framework that would enable registrants, issuers uh, to disclose that information in a, in a way that is decision useful, that is useful for the reasonable investor. So there isn't anything here that is uh, controversial. The information is indeed purely factual. And actually, when you think about it, the framework that the SEC is proposing is less burdensome to registrants uh, than what they are required to do uh, today, because they are required to respond to a lot of uh, surveys from uh, various rating agencies and various other organizations in the ESG space that uh, seek to elicit this information. Professor, final question. Putting yourself in the shoes of an investor, what do you believe is the single most important provision in the SEC's 500-plus page proposal on climate risk disclosure? Before I answer this question, let me just say one thing. Uh, a lot of the commentary around the proposal focuses on this uh, fact that the proposal is 500 pages. Uh, and it's true that the version that the SEC released, double-spaced uh, uh, and in fairly large font, is 500 pages. But actually, the version that is in the Federal Register, uh, which isn't double-spaced, is only 140 pages. So, so I just want to say it's not as monstrous as uh, some people make it out to be. And of course, a lot of the content of the proposal is just uh, pro forma analysis or things that are just required by statute to be to be there. Uh, so it makes for easier reading than, you know, th- than one might expect when uh, they hear 100 pages. And actually, I would encourage uh, people to, to, to read the proposal because it is much more reasonable than, uh, than it is being made out uh, to be. So, uh, but setting that aside, uh, what is the most important provision? I think less so than uh, one single provision, I think is the approach. And the approach is actually an approach that is consistent with what the SEC has uh, always done. Uh, And it is also something that will be a benefit to issuers uh, and their advisors. Because uh, right now, we do have uh, a lot of different ways to present this information. A lot of different uh, parties are interested in this information. They're asking for this information. I think uh, I listened to an interview recently where um, a CFO or uh, 
the cor corporate uh, finance office of, of, a, of a company reported that they uh, are being asked to fill out uh, around 100 surveys every year around various different ESG metrics and uh, ESG information. And that's just very burdensome uh, and very time consuming. And of course, this is just the issuer end, when you think about the investor end, they uh, will receive the, the information, but uh, it would not be comparable. There'll be different sources of information. So the fact that the SEC is doing the work now to come up with a consistent comparable disclosure framework around climate-related risk uh, is, is very important. And the bigger uh, question behind all of this is, of course, is climate-related risk uh, and climate-related information uh, material or important to investors? And I think there isn't an easy way to uh, like an automatic way to answer this because materiality is not self self executing, but we can look at what actual mainstream investors are asking for and what mainstream investors are uh, doing in making their investment decisions. And uh, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and other uh, asset managers that are uh, looking after uh, tens of trillions of dollars in assets under management are on record as saying that this information is actually important to their investment decisions. And so um, I, I think for that reason, uh, it is important that we have a standardized and consistent and comparable framework for presenting that information. And uh, I think this is ultimately helpful both for issuers and for investors. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor George S. Georgiev, of Emory University School of Law. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, -F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.